You are listening to The Loop Podcast, a project in plastic surgery innovation. Hello, everyone. I'm Yasmeen Burns. I'm a PGY2 at Geisinger Medical Center in Danville, Pennsylvania, and I'm one of the hosts for The Loop. Today's episode is an in-service review on tissue expansion. Thanks for joining us. We have with us today guest co-host, third-year medical student, Yelissa Navarro from Medical College of Georgia. First, why don't you tell us a little about yourself? Thank you so much for having me. My name is Jalissa, and like you mentioned, I'm a third-year medical student in the middle of my clerkship rotations, interested in plastic and reconstructive surgery. Originally from New Jersey, but I grew up in metro Atlanta and went to undergrad at Georgia State University in Atlanta. I stayed in-state for medical school at the Medical College of Georgia as a student at the Medical Partnership Campus in Athens, Georgia. As far as my interests in plastics, I've always been fascinated with breast surgery, like breast reconstruction and breast reduction, which drew me to the field of plastic surgery like a magnet. And now I'm starting to fall in love with other aspects of plastics, like craniomaxillofacial surgery and microsurgery. I'd like to think that the Loop podcast played a large role in helping me get my feet wet, as they say, to the different areas that plastic surgery extends into. So I'm really excited to now be a part of this podcast. Awesome. It's great to have you on the podcast. And um, thanks for all your hard work in putting together this episode. Our topic today, like I mentioned, is tissue expansion. So this is not an exhaustive review, but it is meant to go over high-yield material that may show up on the in-service exam. In order to make this episode, we have included information from tried-and-true plastic surgery textbooks, including Grab and Smith, Essentials of Plastic Surgery, 2nd Edition, Michigan Manual, Nelligan, and the Buck Book, 2nd Edition. We have also combed through the last five years of in-service exams to find pertinent questions and made sure to include the takeaways from those within this episode. All right, so let's get started. Yulissa, can you give us a brief outline of what we'll talk about today? Absolutely. We will start by going over the goals of and basic indications for tissue expansion, its advantages and disadvantages, and physiologic changes that occur during tissue expansion. Then we will go over more practical information such as types of tissue expanders available, expansion technique, options for expander placement, specific anatomical considerations, major complications, and contraindications. We'll also throw in some tissue expansion coding information towards the end. Sounds good. Since you've done a ton of reading for this episode, can you start us off by explaining the goals and advantages of tissue expansion? The main idea for the use of tissue expansion for reconstruction involves the theme of replacing tissue with like tissue. We can use nearby tissue that has matching color, texture, thickness, sensation, and hair bearing capacity to effectively cover a defect. We will go into more detail on specific indications later, but in general, what kind of defects do we use tissue expansion for? So tissue expansion can be used to close defects that are too large to be closed with unexpanded local flaps. It can be done in a single stage or multiple stages. It does require advanced planning. The expanded tissue is often used for simple advancement flaps, but other local flaps can also be done. Is there any situation where you could use tissue expansion, but you're expanding somewhere far away from the defect you want to cover rather than adjacent to it? Yes, and this is a popular topic for the in-service. It's a little bit of a tangent, but if you were using a technique called prefabrication to optimize a distant flap, this would be an example of tissue expansion that is not adjacent to the defect. What is prefabrication? 
So in short, prefabrication is a two-stage technique for flap reconstruction, usually pedicled or free flap. You prepare a flap for transfer in the first stage, part of which involves partially elevating the flap. This is where the tissue expansion comes in because the tissue expander is used for that elevation. Then you delay the flap, meaning you allow it to heal and revascularize so its blood supply is strengthened, and then you transfer it. So I don't want to get too much into the weeds because it's kind of a complex technique, but that is another way that tissue expansion could be used distant from the defect. But keep in mind, it's an exception and it's not very common. The vast majority of the time you're using tissue expansion adjacent to your defect. Oh, I see. So what properties of the skin make tissue expansion possible? So tissue expansion is possible due to the viscoelastic properties of the skin. Stretching of the skin promotes cell division, increased angiogenesis, and activation of various cascades that promote the production of growth factors, as well as cytoskeletal structure synthesis and protein kinase activation. And here's a question for you, Ulyssa. Why do you think we have to expand slowly? Why can't we just do it all at once? Well, if you expand too quickly, you could cause tissue ischemia. So you have to strike a balance where there's enough pressure to result in expansion, but not so much pressure that blood flow is restricted. Yep, that's exactly right. So what is a creep phenomena and how does it play into effect in tissue expansion? Creep is defined as stretching of a material under a constant load over time. There are two components of the creep phenomenon that occur during tissue expansion. First, when a mechanical stress is induced on a tissue, the tissue undergoes mechanical creep. This is the skin's inherent ability to stretch. There is a displacement of fluid out of the collagen networks. Then the collagen and elastic fibers undergo microfragmentation. The fibers then realign into the expanded field of adjacent tissue. This usually occurs with acute stretching of the skin. Then you have biological creep, which is a result of mechanical stress over time after chronic stretching. During this time, you'll see increased fibroblast, collagen, and myofilament synthesis in the stretched tissue, increased mitotic activity, and neovascularization. So there's actual cellular growth and tissue regeneration in this type of creep. Over time, the tissue then experiences stress relaxation. So the longer the tissue is expanded, the less force is needed to maintain that tissue stretch due to new tissue formation. That makes sense. So during expansion, the different layers of the skin undergo specific changes. What are they? Good question, because this is a topic that's commonly tested on the in-service exam. Overall, the skin itself will have decreased elasticity and tensile strength. Then, starting from superficial to deep of the skin layers, the epidermis will be thicker due to hyperkeratosis and increased mitotic activity. The dermis can thin up to 50%. However, this can resolve within two years of expansion. Overall, the dermis will experience increased collagen weight due to more skin and decreased hair follicle density from tissue expansion. Any underlying muscle mass will be thin and reduced. However, and this is important to note, there's no loss of function in the muscle. You'll also see a permanent loss of adipose tissue up to 50%. You may see more adipose tissue loss, fat necrosis, and fibrosis with aggressive expansion. And then lastly, a capsule composed of fibroblasts and myofibroblasts can form around the expander. And due to increased angiogenesis, you'll see increased vascularity from the expansion. Well, that's a lot to remember. Definitely is. Um, just to recap quickly, the most important points I think are thicker epidermis, 50% thinner dermis, temporarily at least, less adipose. And if muscle is included, it gets thinner, but there's no functional deficit. So moving on from physiology to thinking through the process of tissue expansion, what if we are presented with a patient that can benefit from tissue expansion to cover a defect? What is a brief timeline of tissue expansion for that patient? Does it vary from patient to patient and defect type and location, or is there a similar outline of events that need to occur for everyone? Tissue expansion, like any procedure, varies on a case-by-case -case basis. 
In general, tissue expander type and placement need to be chosen depending on the defect. The wound must then be allowed to heal, which can take one to three weeks, and then the patient will start to undergo serial expansion. This can vary among patients and can be dependent on lots of things like scheduling, transportation issues, and also the characteristics of the defect that needs to be reconstructed. But in general, the serial expansion period ranges from weeks to months. Expanders are filled typically once a week or once every two weeks, and once the goal size is met, then there's a delay of about three to four weeks before the next stage of reconstruction. And then the next stage can even vary. So it might be permanent implant placement or flap reconstruction if we're talking about breast reconstruction versus just local flap advancement and closure. How do you know how big the expanded tissue should be to cover the defect? So tissue available for the reconstruction can be approximately calculated as the circumference of the expanded tissue minus the base diameter of the expander. As a result, the choice of expander is an important initial step for decision making and tissue expansion. Actually, this would be a great place to introduce some variations in the expander types. Yulissa, can you walk us through some of the different types of expanders available? Of course. So the basic design of a tissue expander is usually an inflatable silicone elastomer reservoir with variable injection ports for filling, different base styles, textures, shapes, dimensions, and fill. Exactly. And we will talk through each of those. First, injection ports can be either remote and connected to the expander via tubing or integrated into the reservoir. So you'll want to be cautious with MRI for expanders in general because a majority of these ports can potentially interact with MRI magnetic fields, can cause malpositioning, port dislodgement, pain, burning sensations, or thermal injuries. So in general, when someone has an expander in, you want to avoid MRI. For the base of the expander, it can be rigid, and only expand in one direction, which is the most common, or it can be soft, which allows for expansion in all directions. And then what about the surface of the expander? So what are the two categories there? And what about shape? The surface of the expander can be either smooth or textured. And then, like you mentioned, shape can also vary, which allows for a customization of expanded tissue catering to the specific defect characteristics. For shape, the most common are round, oval, rectangular, or crescentic. Yes. So moving on to filling the expanders, you typically fill them with either saline or air. Saline is the most common and air is lighter, though it can be associated with expander deflation due to partial resorption through the expander over time. What is the rule of thumb for how big you want the expander to be? You usually want the base diameter to be 2 to 2.5 times the diameter of the defect that you want to close. Okay. So anyway, as you can see, there are a lot of different things you have to think about when choosing an expander. You can also use multiple expanders to customize the shape of the expansion. And all of this will vary based on anatomic region, defect shape and size, and patient and surgeon preferences. How close can you place the expander to a defect? The incision for the expander is most commonly placed at the margin of the defect because this is most convenient. However, some of our textbook sources that we read for this episode did say that this placement is not preferable. The incision in general should be made perpendicular to the direction of expansion, which is also the long axis of the expander, because we want to avoid tension across the incision. And the pocket formed has to be large enough for the expander to lay without any creases, but not large enough to allow it to migrate freely. And what layer should the expander pocket be created in? It depends on the anatomical region. Some options are subcutaneous, superfascial, submuscular, and subgaleal, um, but it does vary depending on the type of tissue that needs to be expanded. Got it. 
So let's move on to talking about different anatomical regions. The major regions for tissue expansion are categorized into head and neck, breast, trunk, and extremities. What are the main applications for tissue expansion in the head and neck area? The head and neck area can be subdivided into five tissue-specific areas, scalp, forehead, nose, lateral, cheek, neck, and upper lip, and periorbital. Of those five, the scalp is one of the few regions of the body with specific hair-bearing qualities. So tissue expansion on the scalp is an ideal option for defect coverage. Using the nearby tissue means that you can cover the defect with hair-bearing skin instead of having a hairless spot in the area of the reconstruction. And up to 50% of the scalp can undergo tissue expansion without any noticeable thinning of hair. So Yulissa, what types of conditions can tissue expansion be used for on the scalp? There are many. So defects from tissue excision, traumatic injury, burns, congenital or oncologic tissue defects or infection. Yes, exactly. Tissue expansion in general is a good option for the scalp. Tissue expanders are usually placed below the galea aponeurotica for maximal tissue coverage and to protect and optimize blood supply to the expanded skin. Expanders can also be placed in the subcutaneous layer, although that's much less common. Can the pressure of the tissue expansion deform the skull? It's a good question. Um, a patient can experience cranial molding from serial expansion, but this is usually temporary and corrects with three to four months. What about forehead and facial tissue expansion? Expansion into the forehead and the face is possible, though we must take aesthetics into consideration, which can be challenging. It's important to maintain the hairline and brow symmetry. Expanders are usually placed in lateral facial areas like the cheek and the neck with a facelift type incision in the preauricular area. Expanders can be placed above the platysma or the submuscular aponeurotic system or SMAS, and a distal port is commonly used either within the neck or posterior. Very cool. Now moving down the body, the most common use for tissue expander that most students and residents probably encounter is for breast reconstruction, right? What is important about tissue expansion to consider when we think about the breast? So tissue expansion is commonly used for post-mastectomy breast reconstruction, but can also be used for the correction of congenital anomalies and feminizing gender-affirming chest surgery. Most commonly, an expander with an integrated port is used, positioned within the mastectomy pocket for post-mastectomy reconstruction. There have been some questions on the exam about a history of chest wall irradiation and post-mastectomy radiation. How does this affect the tissue expansion of the breast? Well, we want to keep in mind that irradiation can increase the risk of expander failure, possibly due to infection, extrusion, or wound healing complications. So while radiation is not an absolute contraindication, there may be other surgical options for reconstruction that might be a better fit for irradiated tissues with fewer chances of complications. Okay, I see. What else can tissue expansion be used for in the breast? Well, several congenital breast anomalies. To name a few, Poland syndrome, tuberous breast, unilateral breast hypoplasia, and it's also a good choice for pre- or peripubescent patients with asymmetric breasts that are still growing. Right. The implant can be expanded along with their growth until the final size is achieved. Yes, exactly. Perfect. Now, the trunk has a large surface area. Is tissue expansion always indicated? It's a good question. Tissue expansion of the trunk is less common, but is sometimes done. It can be used for burns, traumatic injuries, or large hernia defects. Other indications can be for giant congenital melanocytic nevi or abdominal wall reconstruction. With such a large surface area, how much reconstruction is possible through tissue expansion? The trunk is pretty similar to the scalp in that with the aid of tissue expansion, upwards of 50% of the abdominal wall surface can be used to close defects. Placement of the expander can be subcutaneous or intramuscular for large defects involving fascia and abdominal musculature. Specifically, can be placed between the internal and external obliques for myofascial defects. 
Now, our final anatomical region is the extremities. How does tissue expansion in the extremities differ compared to the other regions? Tissue expansion of the extremities carries the greatest risk of both major and minor complications, especially in the lower limbs. Because of this, the use of tissue expanders in the extremities is not ideal. However, expanders in the extremities can be used for nevi excision, resurfacing of unstable tissue, burn contractures, scarring, or contour deformities. It sounds like expander placement is challenging for the extremities. Can definitely be difficult. Expanders should be placed in the superfascial plane and shouldn't pass any joints or interfere with joint movement. The upper thigh can be a good location for expansion. So far, we've mentioned some of the advantages of using tissue expansion and the differences among anatomical regions. What disadvantages can you think of for the use of tissue expanders? So, of course, the timeline can present as a disadvantage in that tissue expansion requires multiple operations and outpatient visits for expansion. Reconstruction of the defect is delayed until tissue expansion reaches the required size. In addition, there's potential deformity of the adjacent skin during the process, which can be difficult and interfere with a patient's quality of life, especially when it's on the head and neck region. Other potential risks like pain and complications may also arise during the process. Are there any contraindications for the use of tissue expansion? There's some relative and absolute contraindications that we have already mentioned. History of radiation therapy or anticipated radiation therapy may be relative contraindications depending on the patient and expander location. That being said, tissue expanders are very commonly used for breast reconstruction even when radiation is planned. Adjacent open wounds may warrant another option for defect coverage as well as tissue that is already too tight or stretched. And due to the continuous process of tissue expansion, it might not be an option for patients who are not compliant or have psychiatric issues. Absolute contraindications include adjacent malignancy, open infection, and placement below a skin graft. Now, we've already mentioned some complications that may arise with the procedure. These can be differentiated into major and minor complications. Can we discuss some of the major complications? Of course. So the major complications that can occur with tissue expansion include infection, hematoma, expander exposure or extrusion, expander deflation, and skin flap ischemia or necrosis. Infection can be treated if caught early with IV antibiotics. If caught early, the expander may also be able to be salvaged, although late infection or severe infection would necessitate removal of the expander. The most common infections that increase the risk of expander failure include staphylococcus and pseudomonas. And then there was one in-service question about this a couple years back, Ralstonia picati has also been associated with textured tissue expander infection. We also want to decrease risk of infection to begin with by using systemic antibiotic prophylaxis, ideally one dose planned preoperatively and then sometimes followed by 24 hours of treatment while in the hospital. Obviously, using very careful sterile technique during each expansion and during the initial placement of the expander is also important. Infection of the port site can be managed by externalizing the filling port and might not require explantation of the entire expander. What about hematoma or skin flap ischemia? Hematoma usually requires reoperation and explantation, especially in the acute phase. Evacuation is necessary to prevent ischemia of the skin flaps and bacterial superinfection of the hematoma. For skin flap ischemia and necrosis, debridement may be required, especially for full thickness necrosis. Partial thickness can often be managed with local wound care. But during each expansion, you want to make sure the skin is not too taut and that there is adequate capillary refill to ensure that the blood supply to the flaps is good. 
You also want to avoid aggressive dissection during pocket formation to prevent unnecessary devascularization. Now, in the case of expander-specific complications like expander exposure or extrusion or deflation, do these require explantation? For expander deflation, yes, if further expansion is needed. Deflation usually is caused by iatrogenic puncture during inflation, so we'll want to prevent this by using large-gauge needles and entering the port at a 90-degree angle. And then many ports also have methods for external localization so that you are making sure that the needle is going into the port and not the body of the expander. For expander exposure or extrusion, salvage is possible in some cases if there's no infection. Timing of the exposure can identify the cost. So early exposure is often due to inadequate pocket or excessively large expander. This may require explantation and then a redo procedure three or four months later. Later exposure is usually due to inflation that is too rapid or too much. Um, In some cases, if it's not infected, an exposed expander could maybe be salvaged and expansion cautiously continued with local wound care. However, this is on a case-by-case basis and really depends on the surgeon comfort level. Minor complications usually do not necessitate explantation. These may be solved by small volume removal of the expander. So minor complications meaning pain, scar widening, cutaneous deformities at the donor site, or excess soft tissue, transient neuropraxia, temporary aesthetic concerns, or tissue distortion, and seroma. Yeah, so those are good examples of minor complications some of which will resolve with time and some of which can be fixed in secondary stage procedures. What are some of the risk factors that can increase complication rates? Well, we've already mentioned a few of the risk factors already. So the main risk factors for complications include tissue expander location in the extremities, especially below the knees, burn reconstruction, children below the age of seven, irradiated tissue like we talked about, and infection. And to close the episode out, we just want to touch briefly on some less commonly used types of tissue expansion. Keep in mind that most of these are experimental and not widely accepted or used. However, the in-service does sometimes test newer hot topics, and it may be good to at least know that these exist. Okay. So first, there's some expanders with self-draining mechanisms that are designed to protect the expander pocket from seroma. There are also self-inflating tissue expanders, which use hypertonic sodium crystals to fill by osmosis. These are very experimental. There are also expanders with patient-controlled carbon dioxide expansion that does not require external access for filling, but also can't really be deflated if needed. On the topic of experimental variations, what is external tissue expansion? This is definitely an emerging topic lately and has gained enough traction to be in some of the textbooks that we read for this episode even. So there are two main categories of external tissue expansion. Mechanical expansion, which creates continuous tension across an open wound to slowly reapproximate the wound edges. Process is gradual, and then eventually primary closure is achieved through a combination of mechanical and biologic creep. Devices called Abra and Dynaclose are some examples of external tissue expansion that have been approved. The second type involves negative pressure therapy. This includes devices like Brava for breast tissue, which is a negative pressure device placed over the breast and has been shown to enlarge breast tissue, although its longevity and safety are still concerns and is not very widely used. Finally, there are a few coding questions that have come up on the in-service exam that residents should keep in mind. Yes, that is correct. Always with the coding. So the main idea to remember is that tissue expander reconstruction is considered a major operation, which means it has a 90-day global period. So 
all post-operative care occurring within that 90-day period is covered under the CPT code, including expansion appointments and minor complications like seromas that require drainage. And those CPT codes wouldn't be tested on the exact numbers, but some examples, 11960, 19357, 19361. And those are considered post-operative visits. Major complications that require return to the OR like hematoma or infection are exceptions to the 90-day global period. Tissue expansion is also a stage procedure, so it'll require the DASH-58 modifier to indicate planned or anticipated services related to the original procedure. Perfect. Well, that is all that we have for now. I hope that you all enjoyed learning about tissue expansion with us. Thank you so much for listening. Yes, thank you. And if you would like to hear more episodes for in-service review, please make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast site, such as Apple or Spotify. We've discussed more topics covered on the exam that you can find there, and we're looking forward to releasing more episodes in the coming weeks yes and make sure to follow us on instagram at the loop podcast to get in the loop i'm melissa navarro and i'm yasmin burns talk to you again soon we'd like to thank dr morgan martin and greta davis co-founders of the loop podcast as well as emma damas pgy4 at geisinger for help with editing